question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, I'll be talking with reporter Jackie Wong about her recent series, Generation Rent, Two Cities, Two Directions, recently published by the thetai.ca. We'll be discussing the differences and similarities between Vancouver and San Francisco, and we'll be looking specifically at how political attitudes towards renting and renters can shape cities in profound ways. What are the differences between these two West Coast cities and what might we learn from our southern neighbor? You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst. That's the band U.S. Girls. And uh, we've got a a great program lined up for you today. Um, We're going to be hearing from Jackie Wong. She's a reporter with the Thai Solutions Society. And we'll be talking about her recent series published on the Thai.ca, Generation Rent, Two Cities, Two Directions, about the rental housing landscape and political climates in uh, in San Francisco and what we might learn um, from our southern neighbor here in Vancouver and uh, a number of issues related to that and some of the similarity, similarities that we're seeing in both cities as both cities grapple with um, the uh, increasingly unaffordable uh, rental housing markets in both of those cities. But first, um, I just wanted to uh, uh, bring on a guest uh, here in studio. Um, she's uh, checking out the city uh, here live, and uh, I'll let you uh, introduce yourself. Welcome to the program, and, and thanks for being with me. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm Terry, Terry Olale. I'm a Kenyan, and I'm studying um, political science at UBC. Welcome. Yeah. And uh, you're hoping to uh, put together a, a show here on CITR. What are you hoping to host? Um, I'm hoping to host an African show. One to expose Vancouver and UBC to, I mean, music from back home and where I'm from, and also I'm, I'm it's music that is different and something that will make everybody just want to dance. Fantastic! <laughs> yes. Sounds great. Yeah. And uh, how long have you been in Vancouver now? I've actually been in Vancouver for three months now. Okay. Yeah. And what are your initial uh, reactions to the city? I think it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a very beautiful, especially downtown. I love how it's an island and um, the mix between the mountains and the ocean. That's just, it's so beautiful. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being here in studio with me. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that program. Yes, (laughs) listen in. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, do. Great. Well, we're going to move into um, an interview with Jackie Wong, and this was recorded um, in late October of this year. Uh, this is Jackie Wong, um, a reporter with the Thai Solutions Society. Uh, we uh, sat down and, and chatted about her series, Generation Rent. Can you just start by telling me about the series, Generation Rent? Sure. So, um so Generation Rent is a uh, it's a four part series of uh, articles and one personal essay that compares um, the rental housing landscapes between Vancouver and, and San Francisco, and uh, it came about through my work with the Tai Solution Society, which is a nonprofit um, media hub that's headquartered at the Tai.ca. And the purpose of the Tai Solution Society is to try to create a space in Vancouver for um, for public interest solutions focused reporting that other um, outlets or reporters might not typically have um, the resources or time to work on and uh, and so uh, so I, I feel very um, privileged to have been able to to work for the Thai Solution Society this year and uh, one of the aims was to to look at um, other cities or think about um, how to fix some of the the biggest affordable housing crises in Vancouver and I think that a lot of the affordable crisis is playing out in the private rental market and so um, we were really interested in in looking at what other cities do particularly in the states um, and especially San Francisco because um, my uh, supervising editor David Beers is is from San Francisco himself he founded the Tai. And uh, San Francisco and Vancouver are very similar cities in in both size and uh, 
density and, um, and, and the demographics of folks who are living there. So we thought that it might be a, a fit place to make a comparison. You, uh, you have a number of articles within the series. Can you talk specifically um, to each part of the series and, and what you uh, set out to accomplish in each part of it? Well, you know, in the process of um, of doing the research and um, and the reporting for the series, I I kind of uh, I approach my journalism um, from uh, from a questioning kind of perspective, and so I did not lay out the skeleton of the series until I had gathered all of my mm-hmm. material and, and transcribed all my interviews, and so and in and in fact the uh, the kind of um, the heart of each piece emerged as I wrote it, so mm-hmm. it wasn't um, the process was not so much kind of imposing a structure on the series as much as I was trying to serve the story with the best data that I could. But um, to summarize the series, um, the part one opens with um, kind of a, a it kind of sets the intention for why I decided to compare. Vancouver and San Francisco, and both places are at interesting places politically when we think about their municipal governments. Um, both have elected uh, self-identified, like progressive or green mayors, who are, um, you know, certainly have a certain uh, social cultural cachet to a particular population of folks who have power in both cities. Um, and uh, and we lay out some of the, the the more pressing affordability concerns, including the fact that in Vancouver. Um, there's a real orientation towards home ownership as a more um, as a more legitimate uh, way of, of living, and um, and and in the process, renting is, is kind of considered to be a second class situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas in San Francisco, uh, 65% of the population rents, and as a result, it, it's a city that very much self-identifies as a tenant city, and that's a, a big mm-hmm. distinction between the two cities. Mm-hmm. Um, in part two, we uh, looked at the lives of uh, some renters who have lived in, in San Francisco, um, ranging from people who've lived there for only about five or six years, younger people in their 20s, to folks in their 60s who've lived there for 20 years or th- or 30 years in rent-controlled apartments. And uh, we examine um, the, the, the challenges they face around eviction, um, which is a big uh, issue in San Francisco right now, and also around um, around increasing um, an increasingly uh, short supply of affordable rental housing. Um, in part three, uh, we were looking at um, at the the kind of changes that we've been seeing in Vancouver and in San Francisco, and those changes happen in really subtle ways sometimes. Um, something as simple as a business improvement association will be looking to um, give a neighborhood a facelift, and uh, those those are, are difficult um, difficult. There are difficult discussions to be had among um, those those seemingly innocuous activities. Um, and in Vancouver, as in San Francisco, there is a lot of debate around the ways in which neighborhoods are being revitalized and who um, particularly that revitalization is aimed at and who um, they might exclude. Um, and at the same time, it's difficult to also put, um, paint all of those uh, new developments with the same stroke as uh, with the idea that they're all causing displacement of people because that's not always necessarily true. 
and also the intention of these kinds of new independent businesses and um, and revitalization projects are not always with the intention of, of displacing people either. It's a very complicated situation. And I think that in order to get away from the really black and white, um, with us or against us, us versus them kind of debates that happen in both cities, I think it's very important to try to really wrestle with the intersection of, of these events and, and think about the very subtle ways that they're changing the city and, and even maybe the subtle ways that we um, as citizens can uh, respond critically. Um, part four looks to summarize, um, it's a personal essay that looks to summarize what we've been um, been exploring in the last three parts and um, in that space I posit three potential ways forward in Vancouver in terms of improving the rental housing landscape inspired by San Francisco and that includes um, improving the work of housing outreach workers it includes taking a closer look at the tenant landlord arbitration process with the BC residential tenancy branch and it looks at um, improving the political clout and the imp- political presence of renters in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, um, this series can't possibly scratch the surface of solutions. Um, I was, I felt like I, I, I was really looking for more like hard fixes than what I found. Mm-hmm. Constantly when I asked people who are working in housing advocacy or who are housing policy experts, I asked them, you know, like, are there any solutions to the affordability crisis? And they, the only solutions many people saw were to take housing out of the market or to decommodify housing. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly something that I think should be talked about. We can talk about how, you know, whether housing should become in Canada something that is valued similarly, like healthcare. However, that's maybe a very long-term conversation uh, where there are still many, many concerns and questions that are happening on the ground and in the current economic climate that we see and in a current, um, like a, a capitalist society that we see and we still have to interact with that. So many things I want to discuss, but maybe first of all, give us a sense of politically uh, what San Francisco is is like at the moment. Politically, I think there's San Francisco has a really long history of tenant advocacy. So I don't think that I can give a fair political summary of the city as a whole because I did not spend time at City Hall um, and I didn't go to the San Francisco City Supervisors meetings. And so I think that I'm less qualified to say, you know, what the sort of ins and outs of its municipal politics are like. They don't have a municipal party system like Vancouver does, but the municipal government does have a lot of sway over the way that housing rolls out, and that's different than in Vancouver. Um, I think that there's a really, like, a historical uh, grassroots uh, group of um, of people who, who, you know, many of whom self-identify as Marxists, um, who are in San Francisco doing housing mm-hmm. justice work and doing um, housing advocacy work. Um, the, the, the momentum around that group is so intense that, um, that there are hundreds of, of people who volunteer as housing counselors at uh, tenant advocacy drop-in centers. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting thing to me to see because people are, um, you know, long-term volunteers for at like the Tenderloin Housing Clinic or the San Francisco Tenants Union, just uh, volunteering with the, the, the mandate and hope of helping other tenants navigate the system. 
and that's something that is completely unheard of in Vancouver. Would the equivalent on a much, much smaller scale be track or a similar organization in, in the Lower Mainland? I don't think that there's any equivalent in no, the Lower okay. Mainland. Okay. Um, I think that track does what it can on an extremely, extremely limited resources. Yeah. Um, but its staff knows and tenants and tenant advocates know that it's extremely limited in its, yeah. in its reach and its influence. You talk, I think a lot of the series centers around this idea of security of tenure, which um, in many ways um, affordability and whether you can afford a place is what contributes to the security of tenure for a renter. Um, and, and specifically you look at um, uh, rent control and ordinances around um, rent control. Can you talk comparatively about what you found uh, in in San Francisco versus uh, what exists in BC and, and in Vancouver? Um, the San Francisco rent uh, stabilization ordinance is um, in a piece of legislation that is governed by the city of San Francisco and San Francisco County. Whereas in British Columbia, the Residential Tenancy Act is a provincial legislation um, governed by the provincial government. Um, the basic, I guess, like in terms of a, a quick summary of, of how rent control ro- works in San Francisco is that um, the rent control ordinance was brought into play in 1979, in June 1979 specifically. And so any buildings that were constructed previous to June, I think it's 15th, 1979, are covered under the rent control ordinance, and that means that the landlords are legally allowed to raise the rents by a very particular allowable increase per year. And so some years that increase um, was was nothing. It was a zero, zero percent. Um, this year it's 1.9 percent, so it's a very low um, increase. And what that does is uh, the San Francisco rent control um creates a very slow rate of, of change in affordability over time in a number of rent control departments and that makes up actually rent controlled housing stock in San Francisco makes up about 83% of the total housing stock. Mm-hmm. Any other uh, rental housing that's constructed after 1979 um, recent uh, like condo um, apartment buildings that are rentals that were built in say the 80s or 90s are market rates at whatever the market will bear. And so there are huge disparities between non-rent-controlled buildings and rent-controlled buildings, Mm -hmm. and even within rent-controlled buildings and non, because there are also um, what I think some critics would call loopholes in the ordinance Mm -hmm. that allow uh, landlords to raise rents up certain amounts um, depending on what act they're using. Sometimes it's the Costa-Hawkins Act or the Ellis Act or certain kinds of eviction loopholes. And so there's kind of, it's a a, a shaky... Mm -hmm kind of foundation. But what what this ends up happening, what rent control does end up doing in San Francisco is people can be living somewhere for 20 or 30 years and be paying um, currently, say, like $500 or $800 for an apartment, where Mm -hmm. nearby market rate apartments are $3,000 in rent. Mm -hmm. In BC, um, the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation, which is a federal um, body that um, uh, looks at housing in Canada, um, CMHC describes BC's residential tenancy system as one that does have rent control. And, I mean, we have a soft version of rent control in which BC um, has an annual allowable rent increase for all 
rent rental units. So there's no differentiation like in San Francisco between older units or newer units. It's all units. However, the annual allowable increase is higher. Um, it's 3.8% per for 2013, and that's um, that's quite significant if you are renting in a market rate apartment at like $1,500 a month. You would have your rent increase by quite a considerable amount every year. And so um, as a result, there are fewer kind of gems of affordability in Vancouver. However, I think, you know, it's I, I don't really know how many... It would be really interesting to do an affordability audit of Vancouver if it's possible, because I think that what's what is affordable for Vancouverites is the same for what is affordable for San Franciscans. And I'm not seeing that change over time. Like this is, we're recording this interview at UBC, and I went, I did my undergraduate degree here, and and I remember from the early 2000s seeing the 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 want ads or the roommate wanted ads downstairs in the student union building, and the rates that people were asking for that were affordable for them then are the same rates that are affordable for people now. That's about $500 a month. Mm-hmm. People can't really tend to afford more than that as a student in Vancouver or, you know, as even as a working adult. Mm-hmm. So um, that really speaks to how that need hasn't changed, but the market has changed drastically. Right. You, you use a number of different um, vignettes to talk about um, some of the experiences and, and realities in San Francisco. Can you talk about um, some of those uh, vignettes that you include? Uh, would you like me to speak about a particular one? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm particularly interested in, I think, in when we talk about how neighborhoods are, are changing and um, how this is affecting the uh, the rental market in those neighborhoods, I think for many people this is has um, certain um, certain parallels in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, there is uh, in Vancouver. I think we've seen a lot of uh, interesting, like pretty rapid change in certain. Uh, previously working-class neighborhoods, um, especially as new independent businesses move in and as artist communities move in. And and um, there's a really complicated discussion to be had there um, where, you know, like, I don't, I don't think that all artists or all creative entrepreneurs are necessarily terrible people. Um, everybody has a good intention. Well, not everybody has good intentions, but a lot of people have good intentions and a lot of people want to be able to to set up shop in a place that feels comfortable for them to practice whatever they're practicing, whether and it's affordable. and affordable, <laughs> whether it's you know visual art or, or culinary art. Um, that's so that's a, that's a huge uh, question. But um, at the same time, in Vancouver, what we see is we see this rapid change, or maybe like a maybe things look a little bit fancier now in certain areas than they used to. And I think about Fraser Street and I think about Hastings Sunrise and uh, and neighborhoods that maybe previously were less so in very recent years. And San Francisco is experiencing similar changes. Um, one of the places where I was really interested in, um, in exploring was a neighborhood called the Divisadero Corridor, which is um, just between the Western Edition and Alamo Square Park in, in San Francisco. And and that neighborhood won a, an award called Comeback Neighborhood of the Year in 2011 because of the municipal parklets that sprung up along the street, because of this rise of, of independent businesses that sprung up along the street. 
and uh, because of the increased neighborhood safety that people said had happened as a result of both the new residents and the new businesses coming up um, together. Because before, um, the area was very violent. There was a lot of gun violence that um, was a regular occurrence and um, a lot of like racialized violence that was happening in the neighborhood that um, that made it a, a pretty a very difficult place to live. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's not um, it's it's hard to it's hard to say that that past the violent past of that neighborhood was a better past for the divisadero. At the same time, I think it's really important not to think about things in terms of just like better or worse or black and white. I think it's important to think about how even though the divisadero is, is changing and maybe it's becoming less violent, um, there are ways that it can be um, thought about as a place that could become more inclusive and not just um, a homogenous new mm-hmm. spot for new restaurants to thrive. Mm-hmm. And there are people and residents who are working with that in the neighborhood, and I think that that could be maybe an inspiration for folks in Vancouver. Um, there is the possibility to create inclusive neighborhoods, not just the way that um, that maybe city folks talk about it or um, high-level planners talk about it. I think that people can do that in much more granular form as residents of neighborhoods. And it's about being mindful of of your the power that you hold as a resident of any neighborhood and the people that are around you mm-hmm. and, and not being blind to that. And that includes kind of changing maybe a relationship around around your position in a neighborhood. It's not just about consuming housing, it's about living somewhere. I mean, it's really interesting in the the article about sort of the tech um, the tech boom and the tech industry driving a lot of the changes in in neighborhoods in San Francisco. And as somebody, I was in San Francisco last year. Um, I feel like there um, the tectonic, like social tectonic shifts going on in the city, and it's almost um, it's it's palpable in a sense of just like the upheaval. Um, and I'm just curious, you choose not to use the word gentrification, you don't use the G word mm-hmm. in the series, and I'm just curious if that was intentional or if if this is a way to try to talk about something that some people then get <coughs> uncomfortable with. Yeah, you know, I wrestled with it. I had so many drafts of this series, and there was one draft where I did have an extensive discussion about about the word gentrification and about how um, one person whose name is Ari, uh, Amy Farrow-Weiss, who founded a, a nonprofit called Neighbors Developing Divisadero, um, what she makes of gentrification and what um, her her idea of, of how it, what the process is for her. Um, in the end, uh, for reasons outside of just the the fact of gentrification being a contested term, um, there were extensive extensive rewrites on this series and so mm-hmm. that part got lost mm-hmm. but that was not not for a reason it was more of an editorial situation and not for reasons to exclude that word yeah. um i posed that word to everybody i met because i was interested in people's reactions to it it's very much a loaded term yeah. um and i think that i i use gentrification sometimes in my everyday conversation because it's the most easy way to describe yeah. a process that's happening in a, in a city but at the same time, I was trying to kind of get away from the idea that it's all only in that, o- mm-hmm. only in all that. Um, yeah. It's not, um, 
I'm not denying that it's a process that often does result in the displacement of low-income people. At the same time, I think that we need to shift the conversation a little bit in terms of thinking um, in more nuanced terms. Um, I don't think it's helpful always to be self-identifying as an anti-gentrification person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the message that I wanted people to take away from my series. Is it, and I, and I appreciate your um, your discussion about talking about these things without placing blame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to ask you, you, you talk um, with um, a young tech worker, I think in his 30s, and um, quite interesting because like many people, um, you know, he works, works for Google and catches the Google bus, but uh, has his lifestyle in the city that he enjoys, that he loves, um, but then, um, you know, takes that, takes that uh, bus ride out to the valley um, to go work. And I, I guess I'm curious, and he, he talks, talks about it, I think there's a quote from him saying that he doesn't see himself as necessarily part of the problem, quote-unquote. But I'm curious, like, in, in discussions with people, without placing blame, is there an understanding that I am, I am necessarily part of this change, though, and that that should maybe... I should acknowledge that and then somehow um, use that to, to build solidarity or build, you know, work for housing justice, work for affordable housing, secure my neighbor's tenure through things like rent control or, you know, try to collectively create these forms of solidarity? Or is it, well, you know, maybe I'm part of it, but sort of this this individualistic notion of housing is an individual problem Mm -hmm. rather than a collective shared neighborhood Mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it brings up a lot of questions. I think for one thing, like I'll I'll make a few points here, Mm -hmm. and I think the first point is that um, people are not their jobs, right? So people are not, not every individual is their jobs, and there's Mm -hmm. a big desire to kind of put everybody in one um, demographic and stuff. But I, I also think like, and this is through not only meeting Alejandro, who's who's 27, works for Google, um, does not have a university degree, was a auto mechanic and kind of fell into the job mm-hmm. when Google was really hot at in like 2006. And I met other tech workers as well, other people who work in tech in San Francisco. And one person works for Pandora. Um, another person works for a research nonprofit in the Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And they felt that they did not feel as though the 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 kind of blame of, of tech workers was they didn't feel right about that mm-hmm. they felt as though to them and this is only speaking to the experiences of just individuals so not everybody but the people I was talking to were saying how um, from their perspective working in tech and working in the field that they choose to work in is is a, a creative and intellectually challenging pursuit that they find rewarding and they find um they find meaning Mm -hmm. in and um and they they are interested in working like politically people of course every individual has different political views but uh one individual who i spoke with politically has um a very a very strong interest in 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 civic engagement and in Mm -hmm. participating in civic and political processes that uh that he th- and I would I think that he would self-identify perhaps as a politically progressive person. Mm-hmm. 
and so and yet he also commutes to a a campus in mm-hmm. in the valley mm-hmm. so um at the same time um there's a wonderful piece in the new yorker by george packer that he published earlier this year about the sort of asocial libertarian um you know we're just making cool things but, and what's going to change the world, but to what end mm-hmm. kind of question that I readily recommend everybody read because mm-hmm. it's a fantastic look at what's going on in Silicon Valley and what's happening in tech in San Francisco. There's lots and lots of questions to be mm-hmm. had there. Um, at the same time, yes, I think I personally believe that society is a collective project and I think that um, there are many roads towards building justice and it's not always in the form of doesn't always take the form of direct action like mm-hmm. i would say that that the music of of like radiohead or the velvet underground or something i don't know i was just thinking about lou reed yesterday mm-hmm. and stuff for to me has in some ways done more to inspire social change than um than than particular organizations mm-hmm. dedicated to that cause mm-hmm. have been mm-hmm. and so um, I think it's important to consider the many roads towards that change. Yeah. In your conversations with um, with young renters and and just generally um, renters of all types that you talk to in San Francisco, you know, was there always this sense of this this parallel back and forth, Vancouver, San Francisco, or did you find that there were moments where there were very strong divergences in either the way that people think of renting um, or the way to politically address um, the issue of affordability and and affordable rental housing? There's a big divergence in the way that renters self-identify as renters in San Francisco. And so no comparison is a perfect comparison. Um, I wasn't looking for direct correlation between the two cities because that's impossible. San Francisco is still a much larger city. Uh, It's an older city. And I think that generally people... Uh, incomes are are higher, I think, in San Francisco than in Vancouver, and there's sort of a different job market around mm-hmm. around stuff like like nonprofit work or creative work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would I think it, I would argue that it, it's a much more robust place for for justice workers or creative workers in San Francisco than in Vancouver. Um, there's a big difference in how people self-identify as renters in San Francisco in that. Um, there's a widespread acknowledgement about the political presence of renters, and as a result, um, San Francisco city supervisors, the equivalent to Vancouver city councilors, are um, quite mindful of the fact of renters in their uh, campaigns and um, in the way that they they work to advocate for people.
and this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca. And we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. And we're going to go now to the second uh, half of my conversation with Jackie Wong. And this is based on her four-part series, Generation Rent. How much, I guess I'm also curious, uh, how much in, in these discussions does just the landscape, the built form of San Francisco come into this? And we think of Vancouver as sort of terminal city. It's, it's always, you know, it has no history, right? These, these uh, mythologies and narratives that continue to persist. Um, and I think in a way, I would argue that that contributes to the, the ability to redevelop Vancouver and constantly redevelop and demolish and just, I mean, how many houses do people see in a four-month period knocked down in, you know, a, a single-family home neighborhood? Like, it, I am constantly astonished at just the, the rate of, of, of demolition and then redevelopment in Vancouver. Do you think part of, um, part of you know, this discussion is also about just the age of the housing stock in San Francisco where it's sometimes harder to redevelop and and knock stuff down or like is is the built form part of this as well in terms of preserving maybe older older housing stock mm. and I know this maybe wasn't <laughs> the focus but it's something I, that strikes me as well yep um I can't speak to this very well but I know that there are different uh, demolition bylaws in San Francisco than in Vancouver, particularly in the Tenderloin, which yeah. is like the downtown east side of San Francisco, and different rules around what can be demolished um, in San Francisco versus Vancouver creates a different built form. Yeah. So there's, I would say, using Vancouver language, there's like a really widespread sort of heritage housing type in San Francisco. Um, however, the the houses themselves, like they're larger, they're larger Victorian houses with yeah. higher ceilings, bigger rooms, like more open kitchens. Mm-hmm. And so people who are renting also have more space. Like I think that creates more livability um, for people. So there's, even if you're renting, you still have like quite a large kitchen or a bedroom or something that in Vancouver, it's this, it's this tiny shoebox town where there's not a lot of space. And a lot um, of the affordability is generated through basement suites, which right. does not have an equivalent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so I did not... Um, I'm sure there are basement suites that exist in San Francisco, but I didn't uh, see them myself. I mean, mm-hmm. I was kind of seeing more um, places where it was actually feasible for families to be living or large roommate households of, you know, like five to eight people or something in a house. And... And that in Vancouver is kind of unheard of. Like a big challenge for families or people with kids is that they can't afford to rent here because it's too small. Like the the built form is too tiny and too restrictive mm-hmm. for kids to be running around and stuff. And so I think also there's too maybe more of a pride in renting in San Francisco because the built form um, is such an, a direct expression of, of the character of each neighborhood and a very unique aesthetic character of every neighborhood. And uh, and that's something that people, that's a placemaking feature that people, I think, can really feel like a strong sense of identity and neighborhood identity around. In Vancouver, it's just like this crazy pastiche of like glass on stucco and three-story and 1,100 square feet and, mm-hmm. you know, 
20 plus stories and towers and this crazy discordance mm -hmm. dissonance and and that doesn't create a feeling of unity or character to a neighborhood mm -hmm. and that I think has a direct effect on how people feel like it's their home or how mm -hmm. they feel like it's a livable place yeah. lately some of the the language around um, sort of making trying to foster a, a tech a tech city or sort of a San Francisco Silicon Valley North seems to be um, it feels like it's 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 being trying to I think the city government is trying to foster that here in Vancouver in a way that I I haven't seen um, previously and I'm, I'm too wondering like if this type of language um, does it privilege certain groups that may make more money and may be then able to access certain housing in certain neighborhoods and I'm just wondering like in terms of the political discourses or language in the city does this validate certain professional types and sort of their this idea of their right to the city over others. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, there's no question that that uh, the the hype around Silicon Valley North in Vancouver is um, is valuing certain professional types over others, and that of course speaks to the zeitgeist of 2013. Like we'll look back at this year as that year when you know people people had this kind of ideal type of the person that they want moving and living here and moving mm -hmm. here and living here and. And I'm I'm so interested and curious in how um, how there's certain very distinctive cultures built around certain groups of professionals or mm -hmm. social groups um, that you know by virtue of it being a a, a group of unto itself that mm -hmm. includes a particular number of people it also works to exclude a particular number of mm -hmm. people so um, I think that Vancouver very much wants to have like a not only social capital, but an economic culture capital, but cultural capital, and that cultural capital right now is tied up in, um, in 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 this kind of idea of who the the Vancouver the new Vancouver tech worker is, and I think that's the most um, the most striking example of that right now is if you were to ever visit the offices of Hootsuite and mm -hmm. think about the folks who who work there. Mm -hmm. And many individuals who work at Hootsuite authentically enjoy their jobs. Mm. And many individuals who work at Hootsuite are also involved um, in community work in various ways that, mm -hmm. that I don't personally know. But many of them are probably also not. Mm -hmm. It's a huge diversity of people. There's hundreds of people who work there. But um, that person is, is somebody that does not reflect the linguistic or cultural or ethnic or economic diversity of Vancouver. And one need only go to 49th and Fraser mm -hmm. outside of 8th and, and, and Ontario or wherever Hootsuite's offices are to really notice how there's a surface representation of Vancouver as um, presented by this idea of the Silicon Valley North ideal. Mm -hmm. And uh, this other reality, a deep reality of Vancouver, mm -hmm. up at 49th and Fraser, that people don't like to talk about, but mm -hmm. is being, you know, very much experienced by mm -hmm. by many people in the city. Mm -hmm. What was I going to ask? Oh, I was going to ask you if 
in one of your um, propositions or or suggestions or recommendations, you talk about um, giving renters more political clout, or or that it's probably not something that will be given readily, but that this needs to occur for things to to be um, for there to be a greater amount of, of rental housing um, available in Vancouver and and just a greater degree of affordability. I'm I'm just wondering if you see if you see possibilities or um, unlike San Francisco having the provincial government um, regulate or oversee the the, the um, residential tenancy act, whether this poses a, another um, challenge to the smoke potential political mobilization in Vancouver and whether you think we're likely to see something um, that has legs? Um, I think that the idea of giving renters political clout, I didn't mean for that to be a situation of like a larger body giving renters mm-hmm. clout. I yeah. think that renters have to take that upon themselves and and build that on the ground. and. Uh, the BC Residential Tenancy Act, um, I don't think it's going to change soon. However, I think that what could happen is there could be maybe more civic involvement in in, in rental housing um, as we as as time passes. Um, the city of Vancouver is moving in that direction, and um, and it's early days right now to see. Mm-hmm what that direction, what the fruits of that direction will have. Like right now, of course, with every new initiative that the city announces, there's both fanfare and controversy, mm-hmm. and there's both um, praise and, and, and strong, strong criticism. Mm-hmm. And, and that always especially has to do with the ways in which the city is, is looking to address rental housing, mm-hmm. which again um, continues to be understood by many as a provincial not mm-hmm. municipal jurisdiction, so why are they even bothering? Mm-hmm. And so I think that maybe that question, like, why are they even bothering? We need to ask ourselves, why are we even bothering? And we need to, as renters and as citizens, um, consider different ways of unifying mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and building capacity and community. Do you think do you think you see that? I mean, we have groups like the Vancouver Renters Union. We have uh, the anti-gentrification protests. I mean, we have what I would characterize as um, limited and very fragmented um, uh, mobilizations. And I would say, and many would probably agree with me that this is for many, it's very divisive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, they're very divisive. Um, I think that there's potential, um, but we haven't we haven't really seen the fruits of those groups yet. Mm-hmm. I think that Renters at Risk, which is a tenant advocacy group that grew out of the West End, was really strong, and there was a lot of work that um, its founders, Christine Ackerman and Sharon Isaac, did to raise awareness publicly about evictions happening in the West End in mm-hmm. the mid-2000s mm-hmm. and um, and also work to call on um, on reform to the Provincial Res- Residential Tenancy Act in mm-hmm. days when people weren't talking about it at all. Mm-hmm. And so that was a group that 
was very uh, robust, actually a, a lot less controversial than the Vancouver Renters Union, mm -hmm. and did a lot more work on the ground to actually help people um, walk through the the system of arbitration and such. And I think right. that 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 kind of work is badly, badly needed, mm -hmm. and not really being picked up. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on, I guess, where where certain organizations are or I, I guess, well, I guess another question is, are there existing organizations within the city doing doing important work and it's a matter of coalescing around these issues collectively um, to bu build that coalition around something like rental housing? I mean, I feel like maybe what is different, and again, this is, again, just me talking, but it seems like there's much more of a movement around rental housing and and fighting for that politically to preserve that and maintain it um, whereas in Vancouver we have sort of again it feels like a fragmented fight among different organizations different you know political organizations community-based um, what have you is that a sense that you get um, I think that there's there's a lot of need for increased resources and awareness of the work that housing outreach workers are doing um, in all over Vancouver. And mm -hmm. so um, some people who I would name include Deanna Wong at the Downtown Eastside Women's Center, Andrew Keepers at Kimbrace House working with um, refugee claimants mm -hmm. um, and working to, to find appropriate housing for them, which is becoming in increasingly difficult, Cindy Pang at the Downtown Eastside Senior Center, um, people who who work in, um, in in tenant counseling capacities all over the inner city, whether it's like a, a drop-in session through Pivot Legal Society's legal clinics and so on. All of that work, I think, is largely invisible mm -hmm. to, um, to many Vancouver renters, and there could be perhaps a, a compendium of knowledge gathered um, around those groups. Mm -hmm awareness raised about the work that those individuals are doing um, and I think perhaps through that acknowledgement and awareness could come new forms of, of resourcing or funding or expansion of those positions that are so critical and always under threat mm -hmm. and so and there's no um, unified multi-ethnic tenant organizing in Vancouver and that yeah. badly badly needs to happen yeah. we what were some of the main um, takeaways from from this series for you as a journalist, but also as as a renter and somebody who experiences these challenges that that you write about? It was inspiring for me to see a city like San Francisco thrive culturally um, and. Yeah, Thrive Culturally, I would say. Um, it has a really robust uh, cultural community and multicultural community outside of just the culture that I enjoy partic personally participating in. And seeing um, seeing really strong neighborhoods in San Francisco and really strong, like those are all things that I think are cornerstones of what makes a place livable and feel like home. Mm -hmm. And I found that really inspiring there. And I think that a big part of that livability was uh, the fact that people uh, were able to um, to work together to create what affordability they can in a very, very difficult 
uh, market. Mm-hmm. And so because tenants are mobilized and working together and because there's sort of a working perspective that that tenants are uh, citizens with power, mm-hmm. um, renters are able to enjoy, I would say, like a, a, a more activated quality of life. And I don't mean every uh, citizen being an activist, but there is more of a, a sense of activation among individuals in whatever life they are pursuing. And this is the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. And I'm Andy Longhurst. We're at the end of the program. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was a conversation with Jackie Wong. She's a reporter with the Taiyi Solution Society, and you can find her recent series, Generation Rent, at the Taiyi.ca. And again, if you're interested in any of this content or missed a portion of it, check that out at thecityfm.org. Uh, find, find the program on Facebook, The City Critical Urban Discussions, and uh, follow us on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore FM. And I also want to thank uh, my guest here in the studio, Terry, for being with me um, and chatting about Nairobi, Kenya. Actually, mm-hmm. we had a really interesting discussion. Yeah. Um, so any uh, thoughts about radio and uh, what you might want to do with your show? <laughs> to put you on the spot? <laughs> well, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> what I want to do with my show? Um, well, for me, it's an outlet. And for, I mean, for the audiences, I'd uh, who'd tune in I just want them to enjoy like listening to it yeah that's basically my goal fantastic yeah. well I don't think listeners could ask for anything more yeah so. <laughs> fantastic um, this is the city you can find it live here Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. on CATR and syndicated on CJSF uh, Fridays 10 to 11 a.m. we've got Flex Your Head coming up live here on CATR 101.9 FM and you've got Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman next at 11 a.m. Uh, Friday I'm on uh, CJSF. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions.